Welcome to Kite Line, a weekly radio program from WFHB that focuses on issues in Indiana's prison system and beyond. Behind the prison walls, a message is called a kite. Whispered words, a note passed hand to hand, a request submitted to the guards for medical care. Illicit or not, sending a kite means trusting that other people will bear it farther along until it reaches its destination. Here on Kite Line, we hope to share these words across the prison walls. Before we get started with this week's theme, we want to share some prison-related news. We recently covered the story of Strawberry Hampton, an imprisoned trans woman who was tortured and sexually assaulted by guards and other prisoners at the Menard facility in Southern Illinois. News broke last week that her lawsuit against the Department of Corrections led to an agreement to transfer her away from Menard. It's not yet clear whether she'll be transferred to a women's prison. Yesterday, January 18th, the Washington, D.C. Federal Prosecutor's Office dropped charges against 129 of the J-20 defendants. Nearly 200 people were subjected to a mass arrest during demonstrations against Trump's inauguration on January 20th, 2017. This victory for the collective defense comes amidst an unraveling of the state's case against the first six defendants to go to trial last month and accelerating pressure from the solidarity movements. 59 people still face conspiracy charges, which allege that their presence in the streets makes them liable for everything that happened during the clashes that involved thousands of others. In Bloomington, a J-20 solidarity demo was called for this Saturday, January 20th at 4 p.m., meeting at the Sample Gates. CBS Channel 4 reported that a new program in Indiana that started on January 16th will teach inmates how to perform computer coding to help them obtain jobs after the release. The program teaches inmates how to build websites and apps. Called The Last Mile, the program began in California. Indiana is the second state to host it. The program will be implemented at the Indiana Women's Prison and, if successful, will expand to other prisons. Today, the recidivism rate in Indiana is 37%. The purpose of the coding program is to prepare people for jobs in hopes that they don't end up in prison again. In California, the last mile takes place in five prisons, and the founder of the program says that after seven years, there have been no repeat offenders. The first cohort of inmates will number 24. The Last Mile team plans to return to Indianapolis in about 30 days to begin interviewing inmates who desire to participate. Update on Operation Push in the Florida Department of Corrections. It's been a hard silence for the past five days since Operation Push launched a statewide prisoner strike coinciding with Martin Luther King Day. Information from prisoners is coming in at a much slower pace than people on the outside had anticipated, but reports are steadily making their way through the walls despite many obstacles. Thus far, we've heard from prisoners that there has been active participation or repression of some sort in the following prisons. Avon Park, Gulf, Franklin, the Reception and Medical Center in Lake Butler, the Florida State Prison, Everglades CI, Santa Rosa, Holmes, Jackson, Hamilton, Calhoun, Martin, and Tomoka. A common theme among these prisons is the attempt by the Department of Corrections to sever communication in order to create the perception of inactivity and break the spirits of those participating in the strike. According to prisoner reports, some of these facilities have shut off state phone service as of Tuesday, January 16th. Shakedowns have occurred where independent means of communication were confiscated and their alleged owners or users were thrown in solitary confinement. We've heard reports that widespread investigations are occurring for anyone who has received or sent mail to organizations offering support on the outside. 
Given the past two years of prisoner organizing in Florida, it's understandable that there is an expectation of something overtly dramatic to be occurring, something distinct to mark the start of the strike. The movement on the inside of Florida's prison system has become known for its moments of upheaval and crackdown, such as the unexpected uprising at Holmes CI on September 7th, 2016, two days prior to the national wave of prisoner-led actions commemorating the Attica anniversary followed by uprisings at 10 other facilities which had little to no previous connection to outside support. In most of those cases, the publicity about September 2016 surrounded a violent state repression that turned entire prison dorm units into battle zones. But what was gathered in prisoner correspondence months later was that most of the resistance began as quiet acts of non-cooperation among small groups. The following year, surrounding a prisoner rights march in Washington, D.C. on August 19th, the state extremely overreacted by placing all of its 97,000 prisoners on simultaneous lockdown, putting Florida on the map once again. Thus far, Operation Push has been something different. It's shown lessons learned on both sides of the war. And yes, a war that is still being fought ultimately between the people who want to continue slavery and the ones who want to end it. This week, we share the first part of Craig's story, who was recently released from the Monroe County Jail after spending two years inside. We found his observations about life in the jail incredibly helpful for understanding the daily experiences of the sometimes up to 400 men and women held in a local jail as they navigate fundamentals like medical care, recreation, guards, commissary, and other prisoners. This time, he shares his positive experience with the Air Dorm, which stands for Addicts in Recovery, a program shut down by the jail last year. He also speaks about being a jail trustee, a more privileged working inmate in the jail's kitchen. We'll include more of his observations about the Monroe County Jail and other facilities around the state next week. Now here's Craig. My name is Craig Grimes. I'm a Kokomo native. I have not lived in Bloomington since uh, 2000 when I was down here in school from 1997 to 2000. I got pulled over for um, speeding while coming down here to visit a friend and you know they, they found drugs in my, my vehicle. Due to my prior arrest in 2010, they thought since I was from out of town, since I, uh, I had cash in my pocket, that they thought I was either coming down here to acquire drugs or that I was coming down here to sell drugs. And so what should have been a uh, level five possession charge got enhanced due to my prior, and they also thought I was dealings, which became a level three dealing. But that too got enhanced, so it ended up being a level two dealing was the charge that I was uh, charged with. So a level two charge in Indiana carries anywhere from 10 to 30 years. I knew that I wasn't not guilty of that, but uh, I had to, you know, kind of jump through the hoops that they wanted me to jump through as far as, um, you know, the, the first offer that they came to me with as a plea bargain was 20 years. Um, I wasn't going to sign 20 years and then it stayed at 20 years but they offered me uh, the PI which is purposeful incarceration uh, where you go into a program a therapeutic community in one of the Indiana State prisons and upon successful completion of that you they read the, the language reads that the court will consider a modification of that sentence usually in which you will come back and get placed onto the reentry program which is a two-year program where they kind of monitor um, you know, you're, what you're doing as far as work, what you're doing as far as, you know, hopefully not using drugs, obviously you're going to be getting drug screens and, and stuff of that nature and having a case manager. So um, I knew that even though I knew out, out of the gate when they were offering me the PI program, the Purposeful Incarceration, it was 
you know, that's a nine, ten month program uh, once you get into it. And in the beginning, once they offered that to me, I was like, well, I know that they're going to um, they're going to come down from that, you know, at least on the backside of the time, because you're still signing whatever amount of years. And I, you know, having been to prison for a few months, five, six years ago, I know that it was very possible for things to occur of not of my own doing that could get me in trouble. I wouldn't want that to ruin my chances of possibly getting modified. So I wanted treatment. I have never given myself the opportunity. The opportunity has presented itself before. It would have been something I had to seek out on my own. Uh, I had the means and resource to to get treatment before. I just, I chose not to. I was still in active addiction. and um, you know, That's not something that I, I just, I, I wasn't ready to quit. So coming into the Monroe County Jail, I saw and heard all kinds of guys and, you know, some of the volunteers and stuff that were coming in just talking about how there's so many treatment options in Monroe County. From where I'm from in Kokomo, that's heard of. They, they do have the drug court program. They now have a reentry program up there. But nobody that I knew or had heard of ever got sentenced or court ordered to go to a treatment halfway house, some sort of program that complied in monitoring you as well as corresponding with the sentencing court, then modifying your sentence after successful completion. It, it just, it was unheard of. So it seemed like I was overwhelmed with the amount of people that are out there not just willing to help and volunteer and come in and offer their services or time or just a, a chance to have a conversation with somebody that's still in the real world. But then I saw a lot of these people that were also actively promoting the treatment option. And so when I talked to my attorney about it, and I, I, th- I told him that from the day we met, you know, that that's what I wanted. And so you hear a lot of stories from guys in there, you know, they've may or may not have been breaking the law for a long time. They may or may not have been appointed a public defender who, in their words, would say that they're sending them up the river. They're not trying to work for them. They're just kind of using them as a bartering chip for somebody else who maybe is paying the attorney. And whether or not that actually goes on is irrelevant in the way I looked at it. I was hoping that that wasn't the case, but I stood firm in my conviction of what I wanted. I wanted treatment. So that's the avenue that I took, but I had, um, you know, by catching this charge, it violated the probation that I was on from back in 2010. And so I knew I had that hurdle I had to, to get over. Instead of having to go and do the prison purposeful incarceration based off the amount of time that I had done in the Monroe County Jail, I was able to uh, get into the drug treatment dorm there in the jail, um, the New Leaf New Life program, which no longer exists. It's since been replaced by Centerstone. But for 10 months when I was down in that dorm, we had volunteers, NA meetings, AA meetings, creative writing, uh, meditation. We had a mentor come in. We just had something to do every day. And even when the volunteers themselves would not come in and lead groups, we had self-directed groups by the one of the 12 guys that were in there. We rotated different book-based classes that we had. Um, and then we had workbooks and stuff that we would work through. And it gave you a chance to do a lot of introspective look of 
you know, maybe what your problems may have been or what maybe led you to using drugs to begin with or maybe not using them but continuing to use them. There's some guys that had anger management issues and so there were some that were dedicated to that. Uh, there was classes about respecting women because, you know, unfortunately that's, though a lot of guys have problems with drug use, a woman can be very much a, a drug to them and the controlling and the, you know, that kind of lifestyle that goes with it that when that falls off, they resort back to maybe using drugs or whatnot. So we, we were able to see how a lot of these issues tied together. So that part of it was a good experience. Uh, so, but since I had done that treatment program, even though it's not, there was no specific licensed counselor that came in there and led it. The court did recognize and, and understood where I was at. My thinking is that based off the amount of time that I had in and based off of that I had done that uh, New Leaf, New Life drug treatment program dorm, I was then offered to go straight directly into the reentry program, which is what I would have had to done if I had went to prison and done the purposeful incarceration. So being that I had that time in, that's the, the sentence that I received. Um, so I'm now currently on the, the reentry program. And then in addition to that, I'm opting and choosing to stay at the men's amethyst house as a, a way to be around other individuals who are, are in treatment. Uh, there's a, an intensive IOP program that is tagged along with, with that. And then I also have to go, you know, through the, the reentry uh, process, which I believe is first four months you're on daily reporting. Um, and then every week you go to the courtroom for the first eight months. Um, you're checking in with the your case manager on a biweekly basis, or if not more than that, uh, but at least a biweekly basis. You're, you're meeting with the judge once a week there at the beginning. And the team knows everything that's going on with you, uh, or hopefully, you know, that's, that's the way they they're asking for it to be. So if you have an issue, uh, whether it be a job-related issue, whether you come into contact with authorities because you get pulled over for, you know, a brake light out or whatever it may be, they want you to just to be honest and upfront about it, talk to them about it. They'll celebrate your victories and they'll work through your your downfalls or pitfalls, if you will, that you, you may or may not have along the way. So newly into that, that program. But what I see is a ton of compassion. You know, the unfortunate truth behind it may be that some of the people on the team, the judge included, care more about these people's lives than they do themselves. You know, they're the ones that are concerned and, and staying involved. And it's a, uh, it's a little disconcerting to, to think that there's that that exists, but it's uh, it's also very welcoming to know that 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 does exist and that uh, there are people out there that that want to see you succeed and and. Uh, are on your side. So. When I first uh, was arrested and, and came into the Monroe County Jail, I was in here on a drug charge, uh, multiple drug charges for possession. And then I was also charged with a dealing charge. They have different classifications of inmates when they come in as far as you know, they have a, a points ranking system, if you will, whether you're minimum security, whether you're medium security, or whether you're maximum security. I was flagged as medium security. You know, you get points for having been to prison. Uh, you get points based off of the level of your charge, you know, 
how the system looks at it, whether it's severity, the severity of the charge. So I was in uh, what they call B block, which is the medium security block. I was there for three months where um, the daily routine for, for many guys varies as far as what they do with their time that they're out. But usually by 10 or 10, 15 a.m., your cell door would open up and you had the ability to clean the room or go out and watch TV, play cards, you know, make a, make a cup of coffee. Um, and then you had to lock back down into your room for the lunch meal pass, which um, they would bring to your room and you'd remain locked into your room until after the trays were picked up. And that usually was by one, one fifteen of which you would stay out until 3.30 in the afternoon. And then there was shift change from the guards side. And so you would remain in your room until five or five, 5.15 usually. And then that's when the next meal pass would start. So you spend a lot of time in your room throughout the day. And then of an evening after you got out of 5.15 or so, you could remain out in the day room area until 11.30 at night. So then majority of the time that you were left out was of an evening. So many guys would sleep all the way up until lunch um, and, and eat their lunch and then maybe lay back down until about 1, 1.30 and then they'd come out. Well, people in jail sleep a lot. There's, you know, there can be things to do is reading and, you know, playing cards or chess or just socializing, writing, whatever, whatever and however people like to do their time. But they would often then stay up all night. You would lock back down at 1130 or so. And then for a couple hours, you'd hear guys banging on the doors and, you know, hollering and, you know, everything echoes because it's all just concrete and there's nothing, nothing soft in there. Nothing's absorbing any sound in, in any way, shape or form. And so even if you weren't normally a night owl, oftentimes guys would have to learn to stay up later and kind of get on the masses schedule for the simple fact that otherwise it's hard to sleep with somebody yelling you're not exactly allowed to order earplugs or you know anything like that there is a light that's in the um in each cell that has a couple settings on it where you can adjust it to where you can turn it down and then oftentimes guys would put books over it to kind of cover up the that light so it could be dark so you could actually get a little sleep so i was in there for three months The other unfortunate thing about being in that drug treatment program dorm is the only window that was there was to the first floor processing. So you saw everybody that came in and you saw everybody that was leaving. And in the 10 months that I was in that dorm, I can't even begin to count how many people I saw get out, come back, many of which came back again, got out again, came back again, got out again. It was just a revolving door. And I just, you know, it wasn't just me that said it. There was multiple guys that just, you know, they would say, give me a chance. Give me the opportunity to leave and watch that I don't come back. Some of those guys that said it, they too came back. Um, so it was quickly, quickly for me learned to uh, not, not say that, you know, I know in my heart of hearts, I, I have no intentions on going back, 
but it's almost the the curse if you said it you're almost doomed to come back so anyway but when we kind of got wind that the new leaf new life dorm was being phased out and centerstone was going to be putting a a dorm uh they were going to be utilizing that space so i uh i had already graduated the program uh which is you know it's usually a six-month program like I said, I had remained down there for another 10 months and was still participating in the groups and stuff. But uh, I guess I, I jumped ship, if you will. Uh, I, you know, being down there in that downstairs dorm, you don't get a lot of rec, uh, recreation. Uh, you know, during the summer, you know, they say you're supposed to get it offered at least two or three times a week. Um, and, and I'm not saying that they didn't offer it at least two or three times a week, but the lights oftentimes would stay on until 2.30 in the morning. And then they came back on at breakfast, which was served at 4.30 in the morning. So if you're trying to get sleep, but the lights are on, you you know, I don't know anybody at home that sleeps with the lights on intentionally at night. Um, you don't get very good rest. So then at 8 o'clock in the morning, they came and offered rec, but nobody's going to go because everybody just finally fell asleep. So... You know, we'd have to ask and ask and ask to get rec. And so um, we got it every once in a while. But like I said, it, we didn't get a lot of it. So there wasn't a lot of movement. And, um, you know, the, the food is wonderful for jail food, especially. Uh, a lot of people will tell stories about Marion County up in Indianapolis or some of even, you know, your smaller jails um, that it's green bologna and, you know, watery gravy or whatever. Uh, they'll complain about it and it's not very big portions and stuff like that um, anything but is you know that is is served at the Monroe County Jail it's it's all made from scratch it's homemade but what comes with that is a lot of starchy food a lot of noodles a lot of uh, carbohydrates that when you're not moving around a lot the weight kind of packs on as well so um, you'll see a lot of guys who need to gain that weight when they come in because they haven't been eating and for that, it's good. But for somebody who is relatively healthy weight, they'll, if they're not moving around a lot, uh, it's easy to pack on a few pounds. So um, I, like I said, I jumped ship to uh, request to go to the trustee block, which um, out of the, you know, the jail count varies from usually the numbers I would see, the lowest I think I saw while I was there was around 260. Uh, and it jumped up to 330 at one point during you know little five or something like that um, but of that 300 inmates anywhere from 14 to 18 of them are uh, are utilized as inmate workers they are uh, what they call trustees they wear a different color uniform so that distinguishes them from a regular inmate that's in a, in a regular lockdown block. Upstairs on the fifth floor of the jail, it's entirely open. I mean, there is a door that goes into the trustee's day room, which is also connected to the bedding area. But the bedding area is always dark. The lights will rarely ever come on. And that's, if so, it's because everybody has to be up and, you know, because we're having a meeting or, or something to that nature. But um, you get a thicker mat. It's uh, probably about eight inches thick, and it's 
a heck of a lot more comfortable than the ones that are issued to the inmates on the fourth floor. There's two industrial fans that are blowing, so there's creates a white noise for for guys to be able to sleep because there's um, you know three meals a day that are prepared up there: breakfast, lunch, and dinner. You've got guys working all hours of the day and night, and so their sleep schedules are going to be different. And so there's a it's relatively always quiet back in the bedding area. You can sleep about any time of the day and not have a problem going to sleep or staying asleep. There too, you have a remote with the television, turn it however you want. There's a little refrigerator in there, several showers that you can use with a, a curtain that closes. So, I mean, it's a private shower. You have access to the kitchen for most of the 24 hours in a day. They do lock it down about 9, 30, 10 o'clock and then reopen it at midnight. Um, there are knives that are set out, so they do account for those. I think that's the primary reason why they just at least account for them and lock them up and close the kitchen down. Basically, the whole length of the entire jail, there's a hallway up there. So you can walk at all times. There was no payment for the work. There was no days off, holidays or, or, or likewise. But we did get some other perks. Uh, you know, some of those perks were the food being able to eat kind of whenever you wanted, you know, the, the mattresses, the, you know, other guys that are up there that you had to be reclassed or I had to be reclassed to minimum security after I'd been there for so long in order to become a trustee, um, which I had done while I was in the downstairs dorm after not getting in any kind of trouble uh, during my incarceration. But um, so the remainder of the time that I was up there, I was a trustee. I was, uh, I have a lot of restaurant management and cooking experience in, in my uh, past professional life. So uh, quickly I was gravitated and moved towards a cook's position. And then because I showed an interest in it, I would help the girls upstairs do their inventory. I, I wasn't getting on their computers and placing the orders, but I did go around and at least count or let them know, hey, we, we're getting low on this because the count was up and so we need to maybe change the menu around and, you know, had to make some of those decisions, which although there are a lot of people up there that are great workers and stuff like that, a lot of them don't necessarily want that kind of responsibility, but it was just something that I, I've always enjoyed doing that gave me more of a sense of purpose to um, wake up every day. And so... I got up and worked every day for the last, whatever, 10 or 12 months that I was up there. And, uh... When I went to be the trustee and was upstairs, the guards still have to come and walk through up there, but everybody eats. Everybody. So during their shift they would come up to not only come get a couple of the trustees to, to go down to serve and then you're you're in a sense working side by side with the officers so you get to they get to know you they get to know that you're a good worker or a bad worker if if, if you were but you start cutting up with them uh, you start making jokes and you know poking fun however you want to look at it but they see you as more than just a person that's in jail uh, they start talking to you about your kids about your family um, about what your plans are when you leave in my opinion 
what I noticed and what I saw was that they started to look at the inmates that were trustees as real people, knowing that they, that we had just made mistakes, that they too may have been guilty of at some point in their life. They just never got in trouble with it. This has been KiteLine. Anyone affected by the prison system in any form is welcome to write us via our P.O. Box, KiteLine Radio, P.O. Box 2422, Bloomington, Indiana, 47402. KiteLine wants your feedback. You can reach us via email at kitelineradio at gmail.com or find us on Facebook. Are you or someone you care about affected by the prison system? You can call us to record a message to be played on the air at 812-269-2512 or you can use this number to record a message to a loved one behind bars. You can hear previous episodes of our show or get more information on the prisoners or stories covered on KiteLine at our website, kitelineradio.noblogs.org. You can also find our podcast on iTunes. KiteLine is intended as a means of communication between people across prison walls. We are not responsible for all views expressed on the program. WFHB, its contributors, or any affiliates airing this program are not responsible for the views expressed on the show. Join us every Friday at 5.30 p.m. for more stories, news, and insights about the impact of prison on our communities. Thank you for listening.